morning church family thank you worship team <clears throat> and as someone who has zero uh, musical talent uh, it is a, a privilege to get to worship with you guys in the excellent way that you guys lead um, if you don't know me my name is Evan Henson I'm the college pastor here and when Bobby is out I have the privilege to preach at these services this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 13 but I want to back up and and take a, a bird's eye view of the topic at hand in the beginning in the Genesis chapter 1 creation narrative we have this theme that works its way throughout he God creates it was morning and it was evening on the first day and God creates and it was morning and it was evening on the second day God creates and it was morning and it was evening on the third day the fourth day the fifth day the sixth day God rests and what you would expect if you're reading it certainly if you're comprehending it and paying attention to it is that then we would have and it was morning and it was evening on the seventh day and then we started the whole thing over again but that's not what it says the implication then might be that we were designed to remain in that rest. Now, it's clear productivity was always a part of the plan. This is not apathy I'm talking about. This isn't laying on clouds playing harps, but this is certainly an understanding of work that was so fulfilling that we remained in the rest of God. In fact, the Old Testament authors and the author of Hebrews would talk regularly when they refer to eternity. We say heaven, they would talk about not entering heaven, but entering the rest. The rest that was begun at creation, intended to continue, but sin entered the world and fractured things. In fact, rather quickly, they're captured by the Egyptians and there is no rest. Each subsequent leader ruling with a heavier thumb and a, a harder rule and more uh, um, unbelievable demands upon the Israelites. They're freed from this bondage. They enter the wilderness where they are given what we refer to as the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. And in that, God restores albeit this time with the presence of toil, a promised rest. Every seventh day, you are to rest. In fact, He's going to continue on in every seventh year. You are to have a Sabbath year where the land will not be planted. The land, whatever comes up, will not be harvested. The land will rest and the worker will rest. And every seventh, seventh year, we're going to have a super Sabbath year. We call it the year of Jubilee. Slaves will be freed. Indentured servants will be let go. Uh, families will be given the land back to them that they've had to sell over the past 50 years. Returned free of charge. To reestablish the rhythms set in place at creation. Now years have passed. And by the time Jesus comes around, the Sabbath has become something completely unrecognizable. With hundreds of rules about what they would be allowed to do and not allowed to do. Ob objective things uh, that, that people just kind of decided, you can go this far, but you can't go that far. 
You can carry this much weight, but no more. You can prepare what was cooked the day before, but you can't cook from scratch on that day. Hundreds of rules about how the Sabbath is to be observed. Still to this day, if, you, uh, if you're around an Orthodox Jew on Sabbath and you're in a hotel, they cannot use the key card. It will have to either be done for them or they'll have to be uh, uh, given a room that can be unlocked with a deadbolt. One objectively more work, and yet it's ruled that that's the way. Uh, Ken was telling me after the last service that if you're in Israel on Shabbat, on Sabbath, the elevators will not work. You've got to take the stairs and observance of rest, right? And this is not to poke fun at people that think differently than we do. We have plenty to poke fun at home. Uh, but it is true that it's still that way. Well, Jesus on a Sabbath, Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10, finds himself in the synagogue. We know from chapter 4 this was his custom. Nothing unusual here. Jesus is going to upset the religious leaders. Nothing unusual there either. Now he, being Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had been crippled, uh, that had crippled her for 18 years, literally a spirit of weakness. When Jesus saw her, he called her over, said, woman, you're set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue Indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be cured and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things he was doing. Jesus is in the synagogue, as was his custom. He's teaching, as was his custom, and a woman enters. Doesn't say anything to him. We don't know anything about her. We don't know her name. We don't even know what town he's in. But he notices her, and he calls out to her, lays his hands on her, speaks a word of life over her, and she stands up, and does the only proper thing when you are confronted with the action of God, she praises. But the religious leaders are indignant. Now remember, we've got lots of made-up rules. This is the way it was described to me in a seminary class, and I think it's helpful. It would be as if we knew that this table was not to be touched. Nobody touched this table, and if you do, you're cursed. It would not take long if you cared about people at all for us as a church to go, you know what, it would be better to just not get on the stage. After all, somebody could be walking by and they might stumble and they reach to catch themselves on the table and you know what it says about touching the table. And it wouldn't be too long until we went, hey, you know what, this room actually probably ought to be off limits. If you uh, linger after this service, you'll see lots of kids climb these stairs, jump off, climb these stairs, jump off. It's a fun game, apparently. Uh, and they love to do it. But what if one of those kids bumps into another one of those kids and, and they touch the table? You know what it says about touching the table. So let's just, let's stay out of this room. And it wouldn't take long before Probably somebody suggested, why don't we just kind of stay out of this building? 
Because what if someone doesn't know the rule about this room and this stage and this table and they come in here and they see a table and I needed a table and they go take it and they're gonna take it to their classroom. But we, let's just stay out of this table, this room, because we know what it says about this table. The whole building's now off limits. That's essentially what the Pharisees had done with a rather simple fourth commandment. Now, before we get too much further, I've become legalistic in my life about a number of things. And here's what I know. Never once is it because I hate everybody and I want them to be punished. Every time it's out of a misguided understanding of what pleases God. So I'm going to go out on a limb and give them the same benefit of the doubt that I gave me. And I assume the Pharisees on this Sabbath day, even if misguided, wanted to please the God that they worshiped. And there are specific rules about sicknesses. You can cure a fatal sickness on Sabbath. That was allowed. You can help give birth and you can call a midwife from anywhere and she can help uh, you give birth on the Sabbath. That's allowed. But these lingering issues that are not critical, that can wait till the next day. And so the synagogue leader actually has a fairly good leg to stand on. And it would be absurd to imagine that Jesus didn't understand what these rules were set in place. But Jesus is trying to prove a point here. He says it more directly when the disciples grab the the head of grain and the Pharisees say, hey, tell your disciples they're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. He says, you don't get it. The Sabbath was always for man, not the other way around. He said, you've all agreed. Even among your rules, one of the rules, you can untie a knot. You can't tie a knot on Sabbath, but you can untie a knot. Everybody's agreed. You can untie an oxen. You can untie a dachshund and you can, uh, a donkey and you can walk him down and you can get water. We've all agreed that that's fair. Animals need water, we've agreed. And yet this child of Abraham, right? Corinthians, Paul's gonna call the one for whom Christ died, Right, this person made in the image of God is suffering and you would have me have her wait one more day. So that's not the point of the law. The point always was for the benefit of man and you would have me cause further suffering for the sake of your rules. What's truly baffling is the synagogue leader doesn't actually speak to Jesus here. He just yells at the crowd as if this lady had come knowing that Jesus would be there and she's going to sneak in the back and she's going to try to get a quick healing out of this. She seems to be there just for church. Probably as was her custom. He says, you got plenty of days to take care of this. Come on one of those, but... Jesus is going to use this lady as a much larger symbol of the kingdom of God. In fact, he's going to give us two parables to to show us what this lady represents. I do believe this historically happened. I do believe this was an actual lady with an actual uh, uh, sickness of some kind who was actually healed. But I also believe she is a symbol of something great larger. Much greater, much uh, uh, bigger in the grand scheme of Jesus' purposes on earth. Verse 18, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what should I compare it? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. 
And again, he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It's like a yeast that a, uh, like yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until all was leavened. Parable literally means uh, to toss alongside. Jesus is going to use these regularly in his teaching. This is C.H. Dodd. He says it is simplest. The parable is a metaphor or a simile drawn from nature or common life, arresting its hearer by its vividness or its strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application so that it will tease it into active thought. Jesus is asked why he uses parables directly by the disciples, and he says something rather confusing. I I do this so that not everybody hears. Right? There is a layer to the way that Jesus, is, uh, that Jesus teaches that requires our brains to be teased in to active thought about what it is that he's saying. And I think in these two parables, he's telling us something quite profound about the kingdom of God. Now, when the Scripture references the kingdom of God, this is not imagining our eternal resting place. That's certainly a part of what Jesus means, but he means currently, which was ushered in beginning when Jesus started to uh, um, reverse the damages of sin, when he affects sickness, when he affects nature by calming storms, and even death in the raising of Lazarus ultimately culminating in his own death and resurrection that would then usher in the kingdom of God that is already and not yet today. That we are a part of this currently. I want to be very clear. Jesus is not telling you what heaven's going to be like. He's telling you what it is like to be a part of the kingdom of God here and now, being a part of what God is doing here and now. And the first example he gives is a mustard seed. Now, we've heard a parable about a mustard seed before. It apparently, despite its size, faith of that level could move mountains. In fact, I read this week somewhere between 130 and 150 mustard seeds to make up a gram. Truly tiny seeds. And yet the shrub that comes from them, nine feet tall, and it's not just tall, but it's got substance. Birds can nest in this tree. I think what he's trying to tell us about the kingdom of God is that although at times it seems inconsequential, God is doing big things. Listen, it can be frustratingly um, um, disappointing to look around sometimes. We live in a broken, messed up, fallen world. And it can be overwhelming to imagine that somehow we're supposed to be a part of changing this world. And yet it's just so far gone, it seems. Now, really quickly, if in your head the reason it is so far gone is because of whoever your opponents are are messing it up, you've missed it. If you imagine we need God more now than we ever have before, you have a gross underestimation of the weight of sin and you've missed it. We've needed God as much now as we did when sin entered the world. It's not gotten worse. It's not gotten better. We are on a single trajectory. And it's not anybody else's fault but you and I. We are broken, fallen human beings that mess up this world. But man, it can get discouraging to look around and see how messed up it is. 
And at times we can start to feel like Habakkuk felt and we go, God, it, it really seems like you've fallen asleep. It, it feels a lot like you're not really doing anything right now. Injustice is winning. You don't care and you don't care about me either. And I suspect God would respond the same way he responded to Habakkuk. To say, I am doing things in your midst that you could not even believe if I told you. And if you are so bold as to say like Habakkuk did, don't worry, test me, I can handle it. Uh, he will tell you things that he is doing and you might respond the same way Habakkuk, I don't believe you. At times, the action of God seems so inconsequential. That the promises of God tarry. That God is delaying or maybe even failing. Not even just on a, a corporate understanding, but an individual way. I've worshipped you faithfully and here I am with a chronic illness. Here I am with a loss of a job. Here we are with financial difficulties. Here I am taking care of my spouse who was a partner for 50 years and now can do nothing on their own. Here I am with more years than savings in retirement. On a personal level, really wondering, God, if you really do care for me. At times, the actions of God just seem so inconsequential. So insufficient for the amount of brokenness in this world. And he goes on to say it's, it's like leaven and, and all this flour, 40 pounds of flour. What an absurd amount of flour. Nobody needs that much bread. You couldn't eat it before it went bad. But even 40 pounds of flour, you give it enough time and that leaven will affect all of it. Now, every other place in Scripture, leaven is used as a negative thing. I don't think it is here. I think leaven is representative of leaven in this illustration. And I think what he's trying to say in a bigger picture idea is that despite the fact that the action of God sometimes seems inconsequential, that the ultimate purposes of God are inevitable. That what God is moving toward will finish. That God is faithful to complete the work that he has begun. That God does in fact have plans for you, plans to prosper, though it may not be this side of eternity. That you really can do all things through Christ who gives you strength, although it has nothing to do with beating the football team that's better than you are. But that the promises of Scripture really are true and that the purposes of God for eternity are inevitable. That they cannot be concealed, that his, that his action cannot be thwarted, that God cannot be stopped or even stalled. Despite how it may feel, the actions of God at times seem inconsequential, but the ultimate purposes of God will not be thwarted. Even in an absurd amount of flour, you give it enough time and that leaven will affect all of it. That's the truth. Regardless of how we feel about it, regardless of how we'd like him to move, regardless of how quickly we would like him to move, that's the truth of it. But then it leaves a little bit of an open-ended. 
So then what do we do with that? Well, we go back. And there's two responses given in this text. One praises, one becomes indignant. I've met a lot of indignant Christians. I understand fully that the word joy does not mean happiness. But a people marked by joy are not a bunch of Eeyores. People marked by joy recognize that there is difficulty and reason to grieve, but the fact that most Christians are marked by their displeasure in general is a sign that we don't get it. What happened was the Pharisees had become so confident in their own understanding of Scripture that they began to idolize their own understanding over the actual people for whom Christ died. Some of us have become so arrogant in our own understanding of Scripture that that takes precedence over the actions of the God who inspired it. It's a scary truth to admit that I might be wrong about things. It's a scarier truth to know that I'm wrong about things. I don't know what they are. If I did, I wouldn't believe them. But I know myself well enough to know I I hadn't figured it out. I haven't mastered. I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to be in eternity. I'm going to know I got it wrong somewhere. But if we're not able to say that and that doesn't mean we're convictionless it doesn't mean we just get tossed to and fro like a wave it doesn't mean we don't care about anything but if we can't acknowledge that then what you're going to find is you're going to begin to idolize the rules over humanity for whom they were written and you go well Evan, there's a there's a lot of rules in scripture and I hear people say scripture is not a rule book and that's true but there's a lot of rules in there I've also heard people say scripture is a love letter to you it's not that either there's a, there's a lot of commands in scripture they tell you to do things and some of them require some interpretation on what that means and what that looks like here and now and and sometimes it gets overwhelming to go like I don't I don't know if I'm doing it right I think I, I think I missed it here or I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to mess up there. How, how do I know? Here's a, here's a fair litmus test. If the more that you engage with Scripture and the more that you read Scripture and the longer you're a Christian, the less you love, you're doing it wrong. It's just as simple as that. Now, does that mean we don't care about anything and we let everything goes and no rules, right? There's a, this is my, one of my favorite words from seminary, antinomianism, anti, no, nomos, law. There's no law. Once you're saved, just do whatever you want. No, that's not loving. But if you have found yourself and your primary way of showing people love is telling them they're wrong, you missed it. If the more you know Jesus, the less you love, you haven't gotten to know Jesus very well. 
There is a consistent criticism of Jesus and the people that follow him. And the criticism is not that they were just too harsh. It just isn't. The consistent criticism of Jesus and his followers is that they hang around with the wrong kind of people. They've let the wrong kind of people in. They've not kept the gate well. If you find yourself going, I, I don't know if I'm doing it right. I don't know if I missed a year. I don't know if I'm reading this right. I don't know if I'm interpreting this right. I read this thing on the internet and then I read this thing on the internet and they disagree and I don't know which is right. Are you more loving than you were the day you met Jesus? If not, you don't have a right. Are you more compassionate? Are you more sympathetic? Are you more empathetic? Are you more loving to the people around you? And then, second action point, get involved with what God's doing. Get engaged with the action that God is doing around you. And every single person in this room, whether you're eight or whether you've been uh, retired for 20 years, you've got something that you can do for the kingdom. The last few years of my grandmother's life, she knitted shawls for pregnant mothers and she would pray for the mothers as she knitted it and then would give it to them when the baby was born and would explain it. You wanna know something that I know? There's not a millennial on this planet that put one of those shawls on. No millennial on this planet put on their baby registry a crocheted shawl. But every single one of those people knew they were prayed for. I don't know what your ministry is, but I promise you there is an avenue for you to love people well in your current circumstance. By the way, it's what we mean when we say on mission where our feet are. There is an, an availability and an expectation for you to steward the mission field that you've been given, whatever that may be. And you have an opportunity to be a part of things that feel inconsequential. We don't know this woman's name. We don't know what town she was from. We don't know anything about her family. We don't know what happened after this. We don't know how long she lived. This is a, an objectively inconsequential healing. And yet, it was a glimpse of eternity where nobody is in pain, right? Her body failed her again at some point. We don't know if she was 80 and her body failed her a week later. We don't know if she was 40 and she lived 40 more years. We don't know, but her body failed her again. This healing was temporary, but it was a glimpse, a snapshot of eternity where we get to rest in who God is and recognize that these things are no more. You can be a part of those things. God can move however he wants, but until he chooses a different MO, the primary conduit of God's love to this world is you and I. It just is. 
The primary way that God is going to love humanity is through the church. That's you and I. Can he show people in visions? Absolutely he can. Don't tell him he can't. Right? Can he be a voice from the clouds? Yeah, sure. Right? Can he move the alphabet soup letters in a way that he can tell them? Yeah, he can do that. But the primary way God's love goes out into this world is through you and I. And we get to be a part of it. And this is the cool thing about uh, these types of prayers of God. Let me see what you're doing and let me be a part of it. Here's the cool, t- the cool thing about that type of prayer. I-, I can guarantee you God will answer in the affirmative. There's very few prayers like that. I have no idea if you're gonna get the promotion that you want and maybe even need. Pray about it or not. I don't know if you'll be healed from that sickness or your spouse will be healed from that sickness uh, despite of the faithfulness in your prayer. I don't know. I don't know if the, the difficulty that you're having with your children will be remedied despite of how faithfully you pray. I, I don't know. But you pray for God to show you where he's moving and ask him to let you be a part of it. I can guarantee 100% of the time, God answers that prayer in the affirmative. Because he desires for us to be a part of it. But if we're not careful, we'll get so obsessed with our rules and our understanding of the rules that we will only just miss out on the action of God. We'll become angry about it. How dare he move in that person's life? How, how dare he do that? And if you're going, this sounds a lot like that Zacchaeus sermon. Well, good, because they're, they're parallels in Luke. Luke loves to parallel a male story and a female story. He does it in the parables here. Does it over and over again. Read large chunks of scripture and you see things like that. All right, this is the parallel of Zacchaeus, a religious group that misses out on what God is doing because they're so angry about who he's doing it to. And if we're not careful, that can be every single one of us in this room. But if we'll be vigilant, and if we'll be prayerful, if we'll be engaged with Scripture, if we'll be engaged with a community of believers, and we ask God to let us be a part of what He's doing, I guarantee He'll answer in the affirmative. And you can be one of those things that seems inconsequential but gives somebody a glimpse of eternity with God. Let's pray. God, you're good and you're for our good. We're so grateful for that fact. Forgive us when we take it for granted. God, I pray that you would do something in and through the lives of the people in this room as they leave this room, in their homes and their workplaces. Something that would be so grand that we couldn't take credit for it. God, I pray that you would do something so significant that our only explanation would simply be God did that. In your name I pray. Amen.